Hello, and welcome to Anything But Tradition. I'm your host, Marvin Thee, and I'm so happy that you are here today to listen to Mindy Levine's episode. This podcast began with the idea that everyone in life goes through challenges, yet there's a certain box that I feel so often we have to follow. It's the box that is, you go to this school, that school, this school, marry this guy, do that, do this. Your life is pretty much planned out. But what happens when life doesn't go that way? Well, in this episode with Mindy Levine, I feel that's exactly what we talk about. That's exactly what Mindy shows. Mindy's life was pretty stereotypical. She grew up in New York. She went to Columbia, had a pretty standard life. She got married young. But then things started to change. She ended up getting divorced. And pretty soon after her divorce, around the same time actually, she realized that her daughter was trans. That her daughter was no longer her daughter, but rather a son. This episode is intense. There's a lot of conversation here about the trans community. and. I think it's one that we really have to talk about, one that we really have to explore. The LGBTQIA plus community is not going anywhere, and how we accept them into our Orthodox community needs to be explored. Mindy Levine is an Orthodox Jew. She grew up an Orthodox Jew, she is an Orthodox Jew, and she truly has dealt with this, with her daughter coming out as trans in the best way possible. Unfortunately, not everyone was as nice, not everyone was as understanding, but Mindy has weathered the storm. So tune in, listen in, explore the challenges with us. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Mindy Levine, and I'm so excited for her to join us today in our conversation. Mindy is a mom of three kids and a professor of chemistry at Ariel University. And I'm so excited that she is here today to share her story, to share more about who she is. So let's delve into it, Mindy. I'm really excited to have you on today. So where did you grow up and what was your family like? So I grew up in New York, born originally in Massachusetts, but I grew up on Long Island as the second of seven children. And my upbringing, I used to joke when I was in college, my upbringing was a pretty, uh, like the standard Jewish stereotype. I grew up on Long Island. My mother was a lawyer. My father's a doctor. I grew up in a uh, modern Orthodox family. I went to uh, yeshiva day schools from the time I was three until I graduated high school when I was 17. So the whole way through, and our family was sort of fairly traditional modern Orthodox for the New York area. I went to Mosheva summer camp. We went on vacation to Florida for Pesach. Um, we, we, did, we did, like, any stereotype you could think of, it was pretty much our, I mean, in a simplified way, let's say, our family. 
Did you go to seminary and then start? So I guess that was the first change. Um, I did not go to seminary. I went straight from high school. I was in um, SKA in Long Island. I went straight from high school to Columbia University and I started college there. You know, this was a long time ago. So at the time it was common, but not as common as this today for people to go to seminary. And certainly for people who were um, not going to Stern or YU, so they weren't getting credit for it. It was sort of a mixed bit whether people went there or did not go. Got it. So how was your experience at Columbia? I loved Columbia. Okay, so I was actually, I loved Columbia so much that I decided to stay. I went, I started, went there for undergraduate in 2000, finished that degree in 2003. And then I did a master's and a PhD degree in chemistry, also at Columbia. So I spent a lot of time there between 2000 and 2008. And yeah, after eight years, I finished at Columbia with uh, three degrees. And I think that what Columbia really was, was my first opportunity to see a world that was outside, let's say, of the very closed religious Jewish community that I had grown up in. There was a large and vibrant Jewish community, a religious community at Columbia, but there was also a lot of people who were not part of that. And it was an absolutely eye-opening experience to see a world beyond sort of the four corners. So it's interesting. I grew up more conservative until I was in uh, seventh grade. And then, you know, I, I was saying to you before, my, my father passed away when I was in second grade. And then my mom got remarried going into seventh grade and she married an Orthodox man. Um, so everything kind of changed a bit then. My dad was more Orthodox, but my mom was more conservative and then whatever. Anyway, this isn't my story. This is your story. But the point is that um, I always said that one of the things I missed from the conservative world is that people are more accepting and I think people are a bit more open. Um, and I grew up, you know, I went to a school in Teaneck um, and it felt very like I was the odd one out. I was very different and really like anything but traditional. So, you know, I was just a very different type of person and I just always felt like out of place. And one of the things that I really wanted to do when I started my Instagram platform and now the podcast is talk about people that and share the stories of people that are a little bit more out of the box. And I think that there is a lot of people that are out of the box, actually. But people often have this vision of like, you know, you go to seminary, you go to Stern, you get married at 22, move to Teaneck or the five towns. And then maybe you make Aliyah if you're lucky enough to think that way, you know, and at the same time you have like four or five kids, maybe six, seven, eight, and then whatever. And and I think that part of the podcast is, and, and people always ask me if this is a fertility podcast because my platform is a lot about our fertility journey, but why not just a fertility podcast it's interesting when you say that it reminds me um when i was finishing college almost i had almost graduated columbia i was dating someone at the time who was at yu and i ended up at his event and i saw a high school teacher of mine and she asked what i was up to and i told her well you know it's been three years and i'm almost graduated columbia and i'm really you know proud of that accomplishment and what i've done and she said and and how's it going with the dating you working on that? And I'm like, well, that's what I'm here for. 
But that's so like immediate turn to the have I checked off or am I starting to check off the benchmarks of what I'm supposed to be doing now. It was a, you know, there's no focus almost on the educational accomplishments in a way, which was a little jarring. And I still remember 100%. I mean, I still remember when I was in high school, college wasn't really that big of a deal. Um, Seminary was like the bigger thing. It was like, where are you going to seminary? You know, oh, you're going to Tiferet. Oh, you're going to MMY. Oh, you're going to Shalavim. You know, like all elite places. And I didn't go to seminary. Like I had depression in high school and my parents were like, you're not going to seminary. And it was really hard for me, especially in that community, being like, everyone's going. Everyone also, a lot of people that weren't even as, you know, I mean, myself religious in the high school. And I'm like, how are these girls going that aren't as religious as me? And like, I tried everything. I made myself religious. Why are they going? And I'm not. And I'm like, you know, and it was one of the hardest things I've been through. And that says a lot because I've been through a lot of hard stuff. But, um... Yeah, feeling so different and feeling like I'm, I, you know, I went to Stern and I was a freshman at Stern, which is rare and it was very challenging. Of course. Yeah. So you did meet your ex husband when you were was, in Columbia? I was in graduate school at the time. Um, I was a third year student, PhD student. So, like, I was working pretty hard. I ran into somebody in the hallway and she said to me, she was one of the other, she and I, I think we're the only two from women in the program. And I saw her and she said, well, I have somebody for you to date. And I'm like, well, I'm kind of busy right now. She's like, well, I don't mean this instant. I'm like, yes, I understood, but I'm still kind of busy. And so um, she was married and her husband's high school classmate um, was my, ex- my ex-husband. So um, she set us up and my hus- ex-husband at the time was a um, graduate student at Princeton in computer engineering. But he was living in New York, so it actually made it pretty straightforward to meet him. We dated for nine months before we got engaged, which um, I think was a long time for from somebody from his background. For me, I had been um, engaged previously, um, which that didn't work out. And so I was very, I was 22 or 23 at the time, right? And I had already been engaged and that broke up. And that was pretty traumatic for me. And so I was very clear that in this relationship, we were going to go nice and slowly, as slowly as I thought we wanted to. So we met on Thanksgiving weekend, got engaged the following September, and then we were married in January of 2007. So that was in the middle of my fourth year of graduate school. And where did you guys live? We we lived in Washington Heights after we got married. Um, Oh. Yeah. So That's pretty classic again. (laughs) <laughs> I had, after a certain number of years living right around Columbia, I uh, thought it would be, you know, possible to live someplace else that was not in that same five block radius. So I moved to Washington Heights as a um, single 20, young 20 year old person. And then when we got married, my uh, husband at the time moved into the apartment that I had been renting. And so when he's from Washington Heights originally also, so that was a, yeah. Uh, you had roommates or you didn't have roommates? I had a roommate, but she was finishing anyway. I had an Israeli roommate. She was delightful and fabulous. She was finishing anyway. Um, and then I didn't take on a new person because I thought this would be coming. Um, and he actually ended up moving just around the corner from where he had grown up, uh, which was a very small world <laughs> for him. 
And so did you live by your in-laws? We live very close to my in-laws and we pretty regularly spent one of our two meals of Shabbos there. I got into a routine where on every Thursday I would go to my mother-in-law's for breakfast because Thursday night I worked late in the lab. And so uh, she told me that I didn't actually have to go in as early if I was working till 10 o'clock anyway at night. Uh, and that's probably true. So we had regular breakfasts, um, me and her. So you were very close to your in-laws. Absolutely. I, I mean, yeah. my father-in-law passed away now um, 12 and a half years ago. But my children have a fabulous relationship with their grandmother. Right? So I'm no longer married, obviously. Um, but they speak to her every single Friday. And so I am in touch with my ex-mother-in-law to the extent to arrange those phone calls and talk to her briefly. And um, look, she's she's a great person. She's really a great person. And my kids are very close to her. And I think I'm happy. I'm really happy for them that they have her in their lives. Wow. That's awesome that you feel like you can still be close to her even after the divorce and all that. I know that it's probably challenging to have that relationship when the relationship with your ex-husband is severed, but that's amazing that you're still able to have the relationship with them. It was a conscious choice to say that my children have another grandmother in their life uh, besides my mother and that she's a good person and a good force for them. And it's really a privilege. And to the extent that I can encourage that, I think all the better. No, and I think the same way with my ex, um, with regard to their, his interaction with the kids, like whatever issues I have um, with him um, that caused or led to or contributed to the divorce, I am actually um, happy for them to have a good and positive relationship with their father. And so when I talk about him with the kids, I talk about, um, they talk to him by video once a week because he lives in America and we live here in Israel. But during the course of the week, I'll try to say, I bet dad's going to want to hear about this. When you talk to dad on Sunday, be sure to tell him, wow. right? Dad, dad's great. He's planning really fun things for when you go visit. Wow. Right. That's so thoughtful of you that you make him so much part of your life. I really give a lot of kudos to you. So call it kudos for that. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So I guess, you know, your expectations for your life, right? Like, you grew up very traditional, and then your life kind of has gone anything but traditional. And I'm curious how that happened, but more like what were your expectations for your life when you were growing up? And how did those expectations change? And what happened that it, it became so different than what how you thought? How did this happen? How did I get here? Look, I thought I was going to be a doctor. My father's a doctor still practicing. I liked science and math and I was good at it. And I thought this would be a great field. And I spent some time in his office when I, over the summer when I was in high school. So I did a little bit of shadowing um, him and also a different doctor for a work study as a senior. And I went into Columbia and I thought I was definitely going to be a doctor. And then I took organic chemistry my first year. I thought it was fabulous. And then I took biology my second year and I hated it. And I especially hated the parts that had to do with people and uh, physiology and living systems. And then at the time I finished biology and I was finishing my second year of Columbia. Um, there had been a request from the people who were paying for my uh, tuition, uh, my parents, to try to finish earlier than four years if possible. And I could finish in three years. So I was sort of entering what could be my last year not interested in majoring in biology, not interested in becoming a doctor, 
not really sure what I was going to do. And then I sort of defaulted to chemistry in the sense of that was the only major I could finish because I had already taken organic chemistry and labs and stuff like that. As part of the biology, I said, well, I, I guess I can major in chemistry and then I'll still finish on time. And so then I finished and I was, I graduated college in three years and I had skipped a grade when I was younger. I graduated, I was wow. not quite um, 20. Um, and I still had not a clue what to do. Um, I spent a semester, so half a year in the Stern Talmud program. g uh, Dating g yeah. And in the early right. days, in the early days, I was dating somebody at the time um, who I got engaged to and then we broke up. Um, and so sort of part of that whole situation was I liked g uh, I did. I liked learning a lot. I still do. I didn't see a career pathway that would come from that that I wanted to do. And then I was thinking about getting engaged and everything. And so I ended up, again, really falling into Columbia's graduate program. I messaged them. I said, well, I didn't apply. I know you don't take people in the middle of the year. Uh, but I was thinking maybe I'll start in January anyway. And I thought they would laugh in my face, right? And the guys, and the head of the department at the time wrote back, we'll discuss this at our next faculty meeting. But it sounds promising. Wow. And again, I also didn't know that I wanted to do chemistry, like as a career either. I really had no idea. I was young and kind of confused and not really prepared to be an adult and with a college degree. And I thought, well, if it's a graduate program in sciences, they'll pay me a stipend while I'm doing it. So I won't go into debt. And if it turns out I hate it, then in a year or a year and a little bit, I'll have a master's degree and I can leave with a master's and get some job, you know, in industry or figure things out there. So sort of like a falling into it. That's why when I talk now and we talk about admitting people into our graduate programs and my colleagues will say things like, well, they don't seem motivated enough. They seem like they're doing it just as a default. I'm like, but maybe we want to be open to that too. Some of us wow. start as that. So did you end up loving chemistry? Loved it. Wow. Loved it. I particularly, and then, so then also I started in the group research group. So you get assigned to a particular research group. I got assigned, my first semester was really rough. I got assigned to a research group, which I was not thrilled to be in. Um, I had a really tough teaching assistant assignment because I was the new person. I was taking second semester graduate classes and I hadn't taken any first semester graduate classes. My engagement had just broken up. It was not easy. At the end of that semester, I tried to transfer to a different group. One of my uh, faculty members who I had been my teacher that semester, and he said yes. And that was fabulous because he was enthusiastic and excited about everything and brilliant and engaged. And like, I loved that. I loved the ideas and the energy that came off of this person who was 80 years old, who was, you know, talking quickly and thinking too fast and um, really pushing new thoughts. I love the newness, all right? Because I get bored really quickly. I have a lot of ADHD. Uh, that I got diagnosed with like two years ago, maybe. Um, oh, wow. I have a lot of ADHD. I get bored really fast. I loved the idea that research by definition meant I wouldn't have to be bored because we would always be moving and doing something new and discovering something new. So my dad actually also got an MD-PhD, but they wanted to do more surgery and he just wanted to do research. Like, his whole life was devoted to doing research. Um, and yeah, I mean, now we have like a scholarship foundation at Penn in his memory, but like his whole life was research. And it was funny because he was 
brilliant and everyone wanted him to be a virgin and he's like no he's doing so i definitely hear that in terms of research and how powerful and how important research is and how exciting it can be because it definitely was for my father um so what i'm curious to hear like what grade did you skip when you were growing up oh i skipped first i almost don't remember it right i mean a little bit i do um, but, you know, I was young enough that it wasn't my decision. One of my children skipped fourth grade. And so uh, for him, it was already part of a discussion that he was part of, right? In first grade, I was told that this was, you know, best. And then at the same yeah. time, my sister, my sister is exactly a year older than I am, skipped a grade also. So we wouldn't end up in the same class. How was that? Was that hard to skip a grade or did you like, you don't really remember? I don't remember a lot. Um, I was a quiet child which is interesting because it's really hard for me to stop talking now that's why i'm happy to be here and talk i just took any invitation from but i was definitely quite a quiet child i don't know you know to the extent that that was a social anxiety component probably um certainly by the time i was in high school i had a lot of things to say but and i thought SKA was an interesting place it was a very small place at the time and so it was really a place where i could pretty much do most of what i wanted like it's not which small now well, it worked out well for me because I was involved in almost every extracurricular that I could um, because I thought it would be interesting. That would be the ADHD part, the adrenaline-seeking things. The only time I really caught up or really felt um, difficult was when I graduated college. It was the summer that I was turning 20, right? So I was young, young, young. And with a college degree, and I didn't have a clue what to do. I was not prepared to be an adult, right? A college graduate adult at almost 20 years old was a little bit like now what and so that was i think the stumbling part of being engaged because again like in retrospect i don't know what i was thinking when i got engaged i mean i do know i was thinking that a guy who was a couple of years older who had been on a lot of dates i uh, wanted to marry me and so i figured oh i guess he knows what he's talking about and then like you know sort of that kind of thing it threw me a little bit that stage of transitioning so from the time i graduated college until i got into the research group that I liked was almost a full year. And, and that was rough. That was a lot of transition, a lot of like, okay, now like I dropped out of GPATS uh, because I was going to get engaged and then I got engaged and then I got unengaged. And then like, now it's going to happen to my life. Like, wow. what am I doing here anyway? In a group I don't like and doing research I'm not interested in and with no friends and really hard classes. And I'm not used to working hard in classes. I'm used to things being easy. But then that switch, right? Then switch to that group. Again, at the time that professor was not taking students, did I ask him anyway? In this, in this where we have, uh, you know, she taught Manzalia, sort of the strategy of saying it, doesn't, it never hurts to ask, right? And so, so that's kind of how I felt about going to grad school and about switching groups, about like a lot of stuff, you know, like, like why not ask? No, I'm deadly of an opinion too. I ask a lot of questions and I'm always like, what? Ask, you know, whatever, you make a fool of yourself and they say no, it's not a big deal. <laughs> um, so, yeah, going back to your expectations as a kid, though, like, what were your expectations for your life after, right? So, we're looking about college and graduate yeah. school, but after that, I thought changed? I would find somebody at some point in college or graduate school, college or medical school, okay, and get married and start having children. And find a place to live in the, like, New York, New Jersey area. You know, probably not in a big community because I kind of like a little bit of quiet and a little bit of, like, openness. 
Um, but certainly somewhere in that area, like, you know, like a oceanside kind of place, maybe or like, you know, someplace like that. And then I would have, let's say, four or five kids. And the husband who I would marry would um, work in some kind of field like medicine or law or like financy things, like maybe in the city. And um, we would send our kids to the local yeshiva day school and just live a regular Long Island uh, life. And I mean, you definitely don't have to like add this into the podcast if you don't want to, but what did your ex-husband work as? Sure. My ex-husband um, is a computer engineer. Oh, um, so that's so different. Not so different. Not so different, right? And he works for um, Intel. And he was in graduate school for computer engineering when we met. Very nice. So where did you guys live? Did you put them in yeshiva day school? So we ended up in Massachusetts after graduate school. Um, you know, once I decided I wanted to go into academia, which was, I really tried to get talked out of it, honestly, when I was in graduate school. I know I went to, we had a great careers committee. I went to every single event they ran to try to get somebody to talk me out of being a professor because like academia could be really brutal. Um, but once I decided that I wanted academia, that sort of limited geographically some of what we were going to do next. So then I had to do, it meant I had to do a postdoc. Um, after my PhD, and I had to do it preferably in a um, big name place or for a big name person to increase the chances of me getting a uh, faculty position afterwards. And like I was already going to be geographically limited, right? Because I wanted to, I was working on the two body problem and I wanted to be near a Jewish community. And so, like at the time, people were applying for faculty jobs like 70, 80 places and hoping for like the best in interviews. So, we ended up in Boston. Um, for my postdoc, we moved to Brookline. I was a postdoc at um, MIT for two years. And there was one of the um, three places that we geographically that we looked at me and my husband at the time that would also have a job for him as a computer engineer. And so we were in Brookline for two years. I got a faculty job after that in Rhode Island. So we moved to Sharon. And then my children were in the Jewish day school in Sharon. So we went to the youngest little Sharon. And my kids were at Stryer Hebrew Academy. So there's a small, you didn't know they had this? No, I've never heard of it. I it's, know Mimo and I know Gans. So Mimo are, um, you know, in the, in the Brookline. Uh, in yeah. Sharon, there's a pretty small elementary school. So like at the time, I think we had 70 total students in all the grades. Wow. Um, now I think they're over 100. But it was it was local and it was a great opportunity for my kids to be someplace small and get what I thought was a standard Jewish education. And so we lived there in Sharon from 2010 until 2019. And you made Aliyah in 2019? 2019, yeah. So what brought you to Israel? I was I wanted to live in Israel my whole life. I kind of blame Mosheva, credit Mosheva, honestly, for that. Um, but And also my uh, father, certainly, and his extended family. I have an uncle here and extended family on my father's side who lives here. Um, mm-hmm. The first date with my ex-husband, he told me he had broken up with his previous girlfriend because she really wanted to move to Israel, and he wasn't prepared to do that, so he wanted to know what I thought about that. And I was like, well, I don't know, because we'll see. Life life is long, so we'll see how things go. Oh, wow. And then I kind of forgot how much I wanted to live in Israel until we had the opportunity to do a sabbatical. So in 2018, from January to June, I did a sabbatical in Israel at Bar Ilan University. And your ex-husband came with you. 
and my yes we were married at the time he came with us um definitely not thinking of that as a trial alley yeah i was thinking of a living in israel is great and visiting israel is great and if we can visit for five months have fun and then what happened well i loved it i <laughs> loved it um and all of a sudden i remembered it? that first of all i'm a little pushy and a little aggressive yes i feel i mean not in terms of you but i feel the same way of like my Hebrew is not amazing, but if I lived in America, I would not fit in with the culture. Like, I need a pushy and aggressive society. Right. I'm pushy and aggressive by American standards. And, like, I lived in Boston and New York City. Like, I lived in pretty pushy and aggressive American places. And even so, so I thought that was a really good cultural match. Um, my Hebrew is actually pretty good. It was pretty good before I came. Um, that's that's a credit to SKA's um, Hebrew language programs. Um and my kids, I think what the biggest issue was, is I saw it was really good for my children, especially my oldest, who at the time was in third grade. Um, he was diagnosed with what the neuropsychologist said was not the most severe case of ADHD she had ever seen, but pretty close. Wow. And then when we were in Israel, he had enough freedom and enough sort of really just the expectations of children here were so much more aligned with who he was that it felt all of a sudden I could see the rest of a childhood for him unfolding in a way which was not going to be a constant struggle all the time to get him to be well-behaved and sit quietly and do whatever the American school system wanted from him. Wow. And and this is a child that ended up, it was it was pretty difficult right like first of all i know that you had told me on you know when we spoke beforehand that you struggled with infertility and that he was supposed to be a twin no not this one that's a different child um oh, wow yeah so this is my oldest um yeah we struggled with infertility um my youngest was a twin pregnancy and his twin brother passed away in utero um in the 32nd week Wow. Um, and what week so did you give birth to him? 35th. Wow. So you walked around with him in either of them? Yeah. Yeah. So what was that like? Okay, actually, that was terrible. Actually, um, you know, I sort of knew that we knew that he was um, had a genetic disorder for quite a while, which big part of the pregnancy, but then sort of his future in general, in terms of how long he would survive, was pretty uncertain. Um, we were not expecting him to pass away in the eighth month. When we told our children about this, my big kid, who at the time was not yet five, was so upset. He was like, you know, I would have helped take care of him. I would have helped. And then, you know, when I gave birth, the birth itself was pretty traumatic because it was a, uh, c-section under general anesthesia after i went into precipitous labor at 35 weeks it had to be taken by ambulance to um, the local hospital instead of the place in boston because we ended up in boston children's hospital in a really good department getting really good care and then i ended up delivering at this local community hospital by a doctor who i had never seen before and my husband at the time wasn't even there because he was waiting for my friend to come to watch the other kids because it was the middle of the night and like my whole labor from the time I woke up until I gave birth was 43 minutes long um, and so that whole 
everything was pretty traumatic. And you weren't but, even awake. That's correct. But I was so happy to not be pregnant anymore. I was just very relieved. You had a NICU baby? or he We did not have a NICU baby. Okay, so it was actually amazing. Um, it really is. So my youngest had needed any care of any type. We would have had to move, right? Because of the place where I gave birth, they did a great job getting the babies out. Great job. But there are no support facilities for um, babies who would need extra care. They had no NICU. Um, he was born small, so like just under six pounds, um, which is objectively a little small, but, um, you know, really good for a twin pregnancy at 35 yeah. weeks. Um, and he needed nothing. He needed no oxygen. He needed no, he needed absolutely nothing. He was a little small and amazingly healthy. Wow. That's incredible. So how old are your kids today? 14 and almost 12 and nine. Right. And you have, I'm trying to figure out how to even say it because I know that it's a touchy subject, but your kids are like, they're boys, girl. What, what? Sure. Yeah. If we can talk about that a bit. Absolutely. Yeah, we can do this. My youngest child, terrific, delightful child of mine, um, was when he was born assigned female. Okay. Meaning that his biological sex was female, et cetera. Um, certainly from the, whatever age he was able to express any opinions, he had strong opinions for, um, wearing his brother's clothing, for getting short haircuts, for dressing what I thought was tomboy. -ish. We didn't think a lot of that at the time. I just sort of thought that everybody's entitled to their opinions, including little people in terms of what they prefer to wear. I prefer to wear, you know, men's clothing also. I find it comfortable. And I prefer to not have a lot of long hair to deal with and sit still for either. And so the fact that I ended up with a child who, when we came on sabbatical and went to the playground, everybody said to me, Oh, what a cute boy. And I said, no, no, uh, she's a girl. And then they said, why do you dress her like a boy and cut her hair like a boy and make her look like a boy if she's a girl? And I'm like, so that's what she wants? That's what she asked for? I guess it's comfortable? I don't know. Don't ask too many questions. I don't know you. And then while we were on sabbatical, sort of on that backdrop, while we were on sabbatical, um, he told us, my youngest child, that he uh, was actually a boy and not a girl. And... For a while after he told us that, maybe a couple of weeks, I thought that maybe it was just a reaction to being in a new country. And so I spent a couple of weeks sort of telling him that there are a lot of ways to be a boy and a girl. And that, you know, like, I'm a girl who doesn't like pink frilly things, let's say. And he looked at me like I was literally the stupidest grown-up he had ever met. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm a boy. And I'm a boy who doesn't like those things. Wow. Wait, wow. and how old was he? He was three and a half. Oh, wow. He was three and a half when he had this conversation with you. Yeah, I get a lot of, okay. I get a lot of people like it's really too young. Okay. Or a lot of questions about how young he was. So I, was, I, I thought about this and talked about it a lot. I'll say two things. First of all, my children, not my middle, but my oldest and youngest were what the pediatricians were calling hyperverbal. So like talking in paragraphs by the time they were one. And so, and so because my oldest was doing that also, the fact that my youngest did the same thing, um, 
we didn't sort of consider it weird that he was so articulate for a young person. We thought that was just, you know, some people, some kids are like that. Um, and so that's the first thing. The second thing is, if you think about gender as a decision, right, then for sure, three and a half is very young. Like really, any age of child is very young to decide something like that. But if you don't think about it that way, right, and instead you think about it as a part of somebody's identity, well, that's not a decision, right? Then at whatever age they can verbalize who they are, then they're going to verbalize it. Meaning like when people ask me, you know, isn't it young? I say to them, one of the things I say back is, I think, well, how old were you when you realized that you were, you know, whatever gender you are? And they look at me confused. They say, what do you, what do you mean? I, I always know. And so I think that's really, you know, when you think about gender as just a part of somebody's identity, like I have brown hair and, um, you know, tongue and I have brown eyes and I'm a girl, right? I never decided to have brown eyes. I also never decided to be a girl. And so from that perspective, to the extent that, you know, um, he was a verbal child, he was able to verbalize that, I think, more clearly earlier than other children might be. But even when you look back at the um, age when he was choosing boys' clothing and boys' haircuts and wanting stuff like that, it was very clear that he was trying to articulate something. And he recently, last year, at some point, he said to me, just, just really randomly, he said, you know, when I was younger, like really young, I didn't realize you and dad and everybody, like, you all thought I was a girl. But the second I realized that all of these people, like my, everybody in my life thought I was a girl, I knew right away that that wasn't right. That's not who I am. And he said that to me last year. And so when he told us he was a boy, and I sort of, you know, went past thinking, okay, well, maybe he's a tomboy. I was able to, or sort of in parallel with that, um, contact people who I knew in Massachusetts who were experts in children's gender identity, right? Because oh. it, it's good. It's good that we were from Massachusetts because we had those resources and that and I knew where to look for information. Right. And what did they say? They said that if he says he's a boy, then maybe he's a boy and maybe he'll be a boy forever. Maybe he's just sort of playing. Maybe he's sort of thinking or pretending. They said that when he says he's a boy, there's actually no way to know if that's a legitimate part of his identity or a permanent part, just based on that statement, but that there's also nothing that we could do as parents or as people around him that would influence whether that was legitimately his identity or not, right? Meaning I've also heard a lot of criticism from people who said, well, you should have told him he's wrong and he's a girl. And I'm like, yes, but, but that wouldn't actually make him think that he was a girl just because I said it. It would just make him think that I wasn't listening to him and believing him when he said who he was. And so what the experts said, and we spoke to people at Boston Children's Hospital and also at NYU's gender clinic, because my father works at NYU, and so we got them as well. And also some friends of mine who are pediatricians for adolescents with specialists and specialty in gender identity. They said that because what we do and say is not going to influence his gender, but it will influence his psychological well-being in terms of feeling that his parents and his family, you know, listens and accepts who he is, that we should affirm what he says. So um, I guess, I don't know, if it's like affirming I think is the word, but it's more like a neutral thing. So if he says he's a boy, you say, okay, you're a boy. 
If he says he wants boys' clothing, so then you buy him boys' clothing, right? So, you know, it's following his lead in terms of what he says and making it clear that when he's telling us who he is, we're listening and we're supporting that. And then they said, if it's a phase, if it's pretend, if it's not, you know, really part of who he is, then just like he woke up one day and told us he was a boy, he'll wake up, you know, when he's done and tell us he's not a boy. So there are two different questions I have. Sure. First of all, are you, and again, this doesn't have to be on the podcast if you don't want it to be, but are you and your ex-husband, are you guys on the same page with how to handle it? That's just an interesting question. When he told us when he came out as a boy, we were married at the time. We were on sabbatical at the time. My ex-husband was very willing to follow my lead, right? So I took the lead and said, we need to talk to experts. It was sort of my base assumption that I don't know enough. Let's talk to experts. And then I spoke to the experts and I said, this is what they're saying. And he said, really? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you can talk to them if you want. And he's like, no, I believe you. I believe that you're reporting what they say. If that's what they say is best, then that's what we'll do. Sort of like, and I discussed this, I forget in which context, like we grew up very traditional, right? But we also grew up in a very well-educated family and we're like scientist engineering people. So the sort of the idea that you rely on the experts in the medical field to tell you how to interact with your child wasn't, even if it was outside the traditional right realm of whatever, it was not something that we had a hard time with. We were, you know, fundamentally, we hadn't seen it before in the, our traditional life uh, background, right? But we weren't opposed to the concept of following what the pediatrician said. Um, I do think my ex had a harder time than I did um, sort of internally coming to terms with his youngest child being a boy. But I think that's maybe a daddy-daughter dynamic. Like, I, I don't really, I had no opinion on whether my kids were boys the, or girls. And the older two are boys or girls? My older two are boys. Do you, I mean, I'm just curious. Do you think that it had something to do with him also wanting to be a boy? Um, maybe, you know, if it was like a phase, then yeah. Um, but no, not really. I mean, because he saw me um, as a girl. And like, you know, when I thought he was a girl, we did like a lot of girl things. Okay. We talked about, you know, girl team. Right. And so not, not, not particularly, but I got that question also a lot. Got it. Yeah. And just think. So the other thing, I know that you are a religious woman and how would that, like in terms of being religious, did you ever struggle in terms of like halafa in terms of yeah, like religiosity, like with him coming out as a boy? Okay. So there are a couple of parts here. See, the first part is sort of like on a fundamental, like, emunah level, okay, like faith and belief and so on. What I say to my child a lot, and I really believe it, but I want to make sure he believes it too, especially as he gets closer to uh, puberty and medical interventions, possibly, and stuff like that, is that, you know, Hashem made him exactly the way he's supposed to be. And I believe that, and I hope that he believes it too, that he was made exactly what he's supposed to be with the body he was supposed to have. Um the body that's biologically female and with the heart and brain and neshama of a boy. So full stop. Like just like Hashem makes people of all different sizes and skin tones and shapes and whatever, he also makes a certain percentage of people who are transgender, whose insides neshama is a master body. So that's first. Um, number two, it didn't occur to me 
This is going to sound stupid, right? And naive. It's going to sound totally naive, but I'll say it anyway. Initially, and I think even now, after a year of struggling with the schools and the courts and everybody, it just doesn't seem, doesn't occur to me. And I also think it's, you know, a ridiculous idea to think that being Dati, being religious and being transgender are mutually exclusive. I don't actually, and I, you know, like I said, I went to GPAT, so I learned in their Talmud program. I went to day school my whole life. I, you know, go to Shiurim now. Like, I'm not an extremely well-educated Jewish in Judaics, but I'm pretty educated in it. Um, there's nothing in Jewish religion that I've learned or heard that excludes somebody from being trans and also being religious. If you can elaborate, that would be great. Like, I know that they're, I mean, I'm not trying to fight you. I'm just trying to understand sure. things like if, that. If you think of my child as a girl, then you're going to have a lot of halakhic issues, for sure. If you internalize, really, or fully accept that the science and the medical um, identity of who he is is a boy, well, then there are no halakhic issues. Then he's a boy with slightly unusual body parts. There are a number of rabbis who we've spoken to both at the beginning and along the way, um, Orthodox rabbis who have written about this topic and spoken about this topic. And it's, look, and I select, I don't speak to any random rabbis, right? But I also sort of select who we go to for advice um, based on those kinds of writings and so on. But there's a pretty strong school of thought, arguably not the mainstream, but still strong, that says that transgender people or non-binary people, that there's no, that there's really no halakhic conflict, right? Like if you say he's a boy, then when he gets to be bar mitzvah, he'll put on fillin. He'll, you know, go on the men's section. He'll dive in, um, you know, with the men. He'll do all of the boy things. But again, if, if you think of him as a girl who's pretending to be a boy or acting like a boy, well, then for sure, then you're going to have plenty of halakhic issues. Um, but since that's not the currently accepted understanding of what um, transgender people are and what their science and you know psychology and medical needs are, then um, there's again not just my personal opinions, but a lot of rabbinical thought and writing on this topic that really backs that up. Interesting. Meaning it, it depends if you look at the person just with the body, or if you look at the person with the mind and decide that the mind overrides the body. Well, that's the question, right? Like, what gender is my child? And so he's yeah. been saying for, you know, six years that since he was three and now he's nine. So for six years, he's been saying he's a boy. And the currently accepted best understanding of, you know, gender identity is that for all practical purposes, he's a boy. In in the girl's body, yes, but a boy psychologically and mentally. And people have done that. MRI studies on trans people's brains and so that they match the gender that they identify as, not the biological sex of their bodies. And so I think that from the perspective and you know, certainly the understanding of trans people is only getting uh, better as um, the years go on. But certainly the overwhelming understanding of, you know, who my child is, is that he's a boy. Interesting. Interesting. So did you change his name? Yeah, we changed his name. Um, he chose his name, which is fabulous. I've been on the news um, talking about this quite a bit in the interest of uh, some privacy for my children. I don't 
he has a um, pseudonym. So we talk about him um, as Roe. That's the name that's shown up in the articles that we talk about. Um, but yeah, he chose his new name. In Israel, you can't change gender identity until you're 16 or until you've undergone a top surgery and with the support from a psychologist. So he's you know, being followed by a psychologist, a specialist in gender and trans kids. Um, but his gender identity is not yet changed. But what we did this year is after um, we had unfortunate encounters with parents and uh, certain parts of the religious community in Givat Shmuel who were, and also in the Knesset and also in the whole country, um, who did not agree with me and the school of thought, which says that there's not a conflict between being Dati and being trans. We went to court against the city of Givat Shmuel and the Misrala and his school to ensure that he could stay in his school because he was experiencing, you know, really a positive experience. Uh, and then he finished the school year where, with his friends, which is great. Um, we still transferred him this year to a secular gifted program in Petah Tikva, so the city one town over. Um, he's, look, we have no issues now with people, uh, Dati people arguing with us because there are no Dati people there. Um, but the school and the Matnas, even in Givat Shmuel, like people manually go in and change his gender on the, the forms that we get from the school. You know, even in his previous school, even in his Dati school, he had teachers. Every one of his teachers, when they sent his report card, went in and manually changed his gender and manually changed the language. These very religious teachers um, went in and did that every single year so that his report cards that he got, even though the default from the Sarah is that he was listed as female, his report cards that he saw were manually changed so that they only came out as, you know, referring to him as a boy. Wow. So, like, the very religious teacher put him as a boy. That's correct. Wow. So, I guess the question is, though, is I know that you said that you had a lot of um, fighting with the school and with the and lawsuits. So, what were those about? No, I left now only because it's over. Not because it's actually funny. It was terrible. Um, <laughs> when we came here to Israel... He felt very strongly, my child, that he wanted to be treated like any other boy. And we spoke to people in the area, um, the city of Givat Shmuel, when we were signing him up for Gan. And there was sort of like a joint decision that his, the fact that he was trans was nobody's business. Sort of irrelevant for the discussions of, you know, stuff. And because he looks like a boy and acts like a boy and, you know, presents as a boy and says he's a boy. Um, and so from a certain perspective, it didn't seem relevant. And so we chose not to tell the parents right away. The school knew, the teachers knew, uh, the parent body didn't know. Um, a year and a half ago, so the summer of 2022, one of the parents found out that he was trans. I don't know how, um, but they decided to spread that news to the entire parent body and to call in religious journalists and get some of the uh, Knesset members involved as well, and to really put a lot of pressure on the school to force him to leave. And the school was co-ed or, or was separate gender? The school was co-ed. Um, his class at the time, this was a, a third grade class, was uh, mixed. The class is, the school is co-ed. They have mixed gender through third grade at the school. And then starting in fourth grade, they switch to separate gendered classrooms. So why was it such a big deal that he was in the school if it was mixed i really cannot explain other people's beliefs um i think that the idea was that knowing that he was trans 
and believing that being trans and being religious is not compatible, that having him there as a presence was disruptive and damaging to their children and the lessons that they were trying to teach their kids at home. Got it. Interesting. They put so, a lot of pressure in the school, the parents. They um, filed a request with the court to force my child to come dressed as a girl. So, And then we were named as co-defendants. Okay, and so that request was um, thrown out by the judge at, as saying, you know, this is ridiculous. And none of those words, I think he said in Hebrew, like a serious lack of uh, good, clean intentions. Okay, but the pressure from the parents and also external sources caused the school and then the Misrallah to issue a decision to transfer him in the middle of the year. We took them to court on that decision as um, illegal and discriminatory and without the basis in reality and harmful to my kid. Um, we win that also. But the judge at that point said in that decision, that he encourages us to keep talking to find an option that's mutually agreeable for next year. You know, the Misrata Fiduk has very specific guidelines, and it does not distinguish sort of between religious and not religious uh, schools, that students, um, either uh, non-gender conforming students, right, so trans or non-binary or whatever, um, their guidelines are explicit that those students have the right to be treated as the gender that they say they are. And, and that's law of the Misrat Achinuch. So it was very clear that um, the law was on our side. It was still stressful, um, certainly. It's interesting because my oldest kid asked me, because I was stressed about this, and he said to me, he said, um, he was eighth grade at the time, he said, okay, but like, what's the precedent? I said, I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, the last trans kid who came out as trans in the Dante Elementary School and wanted to stay there, what did the court say about that? And I'm like, no, no, Ellie, there isn't. Wow. There had, we were the first Tati elementary school trans kid who fought to stay in the Tati school. And your older boys are in the Tati school still? Yes. So my older boys, so my oldest states, stayed where he was. My middle guy was in the same school as my youngest. But he finished anyway. He graduated sixth grade. And so he transferred to a um, Dati seventh grade program, uh, also in Petah Tikva, also a gifted program. Um, but it's been, that's been great for him. At the end wow. of the day, we agreed to transfer him, my youngest, to this gifted program in Petah Tikva, which required some special permission. It's not the same district as us. Um, we also received from the city of Givat Shmuel, um, Hasa'ot, so uh, transportation that they paid for for him to get to him from his school. And we also received supplementary education in religious subjects um, for my child on a regular basis from the wow. city. So, I mean, what do you think about the fact that he's not in a religious school? Is that, does that hurt you? Does that frustrate you? Or you're like, okay with that because it's what's best for him? I don't like it. Um, I don't like it a lot. Um, I think that even through the end of all the nonsense that went on this year and it included like strikes and demonstrations outside his school and like a whole bunch of nonsense. He kept saying, and he said to me, he said, that he doesn't know why people call him brave uh, because he goes to school every day and everything there is regular and people treat him normally. And he really had a positive experience in the school last year. His, the classmates played with him, the teachers interacted with him well. He really had a very positive experience. So from a certain perspective, I think there was, you know, no real downside to keeping him there. On the other hand, there was still, still, we got to the end of the year and half that class 
wasn't willing to have him over for play dates. Well, or to come to my if, house. If the difference between the parents and the child, like the children, for sure, right? like because the children may play with him, but the parents may not want to. And for sure, that okay. And like at the beginning, I would ask people we played with and ask for names, and they would give me the names of people, children whose parents I knew were like the leaders of the opposition, and. I'm like, really? You played with him? He's like, yeah, of course. Wow. Um, wow. I don't love that he's in the secular school. Um, I think regardless of where he was in school, there's a significant chance that he will not stay religious. I think his experience with the religious community has been um, terrible because of what these people have done. Um, but I don't think you can control whether or not somebody stays religious, even your own children. I yes, think sorry. that his current squad gives him a lot of benefit. I think him being in the gifted program is really good for him in a way which we didn't focus on. He's my youngest, so he didn't get a lot of attention for being smart. Um, but he's he's doing really well in the gifted program. Yeah, in the sense of like, yeah, everyone's smart. Okay, good, continue. Um, but he does really well in the program socially. Like his friends there and have a lot of energy. It's a class of gifted nine-year-olds. They have a tremendous amount of energy. There are a lot of personality. He's really benefited socially and academically from the school. And he's also benefiting from the fact that um, nobody cares that he's trans. And so I think it's been a big benefit for him. I do think um, his transferring does not help um, the likelihood that he'll stay religious. But again, I don't know that that would be the only factor regardless. In terms of my own perspective on religion, look, I really, really, really dislike the way in which these people acted in the name of religion. People who claim to be religious, okay, including big named rabbis who said that this was clear halacha and, you know, to force him to leave us. I mean, I think that they're perverting the intention of religion. I worked really hard to divorce that dislike from, you know, my opinion about religion in general, right? Um, sort of the religious people and their practices versus religion itself. I think that the religious community has a long way to go in terms of accepting LGBT people and in terms of accepting anybody who's different. But hopefully things like this podcast will help with that fact. Um, but no, I really feel strongly about this. And that's why I'm so happy to be here. I think that it changes. It changed for a while how comfortable I was sort of being in religious settings. That's largely passed. People ask me why we don't leave Gibbat Shmuel. And I'm like, I don't know why I would leave. This is my home. We didn't do anything wrong. Wow. At one point, before people knew it was me, because I didn't talk to the media at all until after the court with cases were done, I was in our local Makhlet and this person was talking to me. Um, and said, I heard that that mother, she came from America with these crazy reform values and, and she's trying to force them on everyone. And I also heard she's like stubborn beyond all belief. And I'm like, I don't know why you would say that. I don't know anybody who's stubborn like this. So. Well, you did say that you're a little bit uh, aggressive and pushy, right? Well, you know, <laughs> he told me that he was so happy to be able to put the fact that he was stubborn to good use to get what he wanted and to stay in his class and to maybe help other trans kids. Wow. And so he gets his stubbornness from me. That's awesome. For sure. And so how did it affect your other boys, right? Like you have two other boys. What were they bearing things through this all? So... My oldest is in a very traditional uh, Yeshivat Bnei Akiva school. So in the first couple of weeks of the school, I got a phone call from the Rosh Yeshiva of his school that he wanted to come to my house that night. And I'm like, um, 
uh, uh, sure, sure, come. His Rosh Hashiva came to this house for the sole purpose of telling me to my face that nobody would mistreat my child because of the situation with his brother, that he would be personally responsible for that. If anybody tried to, that we should go straight to him and he would take care of it and make sure that in his school, this is not what happens, which I think is great. It's amazing. I think, I think it's really great. And he's also, my oldest is very tough. So I think a couple of times people asked him like, oh, that's your brother? And he was like, yeah. And my oldest and is very, very, very tough. And so people asked him, I think it totally did not bother him. My middle guy was in the same school, but he's very quiet. So I think also like I touched in, checked in with the teacher quite a bit. Uh, the teacher said that people occasionally ask, oh, that's your brother. Oh, why? Right, stuff like that. Um, but fundamentally, I think people were appropriately um, very careful to keep my older kids' experiences sort of separate from, you know, what's going on with their brother and their very stubborn, assertive, pushy mother. How much support did you have versus, like, the oppositional side? The oppositional side that had a lot of very vocal support, right? So they had a couple of, um, they had Michal Volgiger, they had Knesset members involved in this. They had some other right-wing people. They had some organizations um, involved in these activities. Um, we got a tremendous amount of support from Chavruta. Do you know this organization? They're um, for, I think they started as for Dati um, gay people. And now they're an organization for Dati LGBT people in general more inclusively, we got a tremendous amount of support from them. I sort of got connected to them after a couple of weeks. I have a good friend and I was telling him the whole story over the summer. And I'm like, it's not going to be a big deal. It's not going to be a big deal. He's like, no, no, it's going to be a big deal. Let me call somebody. And he called and he got me in touch with Kapruta very quickly. Um, and we got financial support and also emotional support. And they sent uh, games and presents for my kid and treats and Hanukkah stuff. And um they like a tremendous amount of support from them, really in a Amazing. special way. I'm happy to add them to central... the show notes if you want. Yeah, they're they're really very good. Okay, and we're really really happy. Um, yeah. I got some public support from uh, Mayraf Michaeli and the Knesset floor when she was talking about um, when there was a discussion about this, and we got to meet. I um, asked to meet her a couple of times, and so I did, and um, so that was really nice as well. Um, I was able to get with the advice of my child psychologist, an outstanding lawyer, right? We got a civil rights lawyer, essentially, for this case. And he does trans stuff as well. He's mostly more involved in other civil rights cases, including um, Palestinian settler kind of disputes and stuff like that. Um, so like a pretty high-profile left-wing lawyer um, to take care of things. And then I had, um, I had friend support. Right. So I had friends in Givat Shmuel who were supportive, who came, you know, walked with me to school the first day because I thought people were going to beat me up um, because of the uh, violent threats that I got. Um, and, you know, I got really, really good um, social support from a core group of people. And on top of all of this, you were a single mother. So, and you're not even like a single mother for that long. Like, you are a single mother since 2019. That's it was 2019. So how was all of that being a single mother? Look, sometimes I look back at like last year and I think to myself, like, how did we, how did I do anything? 
right? Besides being court and in these meetings and in these discussions and more and more and more, right? And then I look at my work and I'm like, oh, well, I guess I didn't publish as much as I you know, did the year before. Uh, no, but like fundamentally my work, I was able to keep my work certainly at a slower progress. Um, my other kids definitely got less attention, like possibly substantially less attention um, because of that. Um, what I do have and what I'm sort of grateful for independent of this is that my kids are very independent, right? And so they don't, they're not, they don't need or want, let's say, me to be involved in taking their places that they can get to themselves, right? And sort of sitting with them on their homeworks. They're also very academically bright. And so I don't have to sit with them on their homeworks. I don't take them a lot of places that they can get to on their own, right? There's not a lot of sort of day-to-day -day stuff that I do for them that they can't do for themselves. And so like, for example, this, I was telling you a little bit while we were talking before on this, on this particular week when my car died, right? And then I still am still a single mother, still works out that way. And then I have to get kids to different places. And so I was able to have, let's say, my two younger kids took a taxi from Givachuel to Roshayan so that my youngest wouldn't miss his play therapy and like, you know, so there's certainly a, a resilience and an independence that um, they're getting either naturally or sort of, you know, for lack of any other options, um, that makes it easier. It's just, you know, it's a lot of time, all of this, right? Dealing with the whole situation with my youngest was a lot of time. My kids really felt, and I asked them about it, that what we were doing was important. At the end of it, we got several requests to do documentaries and they unilaterally said, absolutely not. Um, so, you know, there's a limit to what they think, what they're willing to do, which is, I think, fair and good uh, for them to have those kinds of limits and opinions. And um, yeah, it's, it's very tiring to be a single parent, even without this, right? Um, all the more so, all the more so with this. It was, it was pretty rough and pretty tiring. When I was on TV at one point, I forgot who I said this to, that um, I think once, probably I said it more than once, once it was clear to me from talking to my kid's psychologist that what was best for him was to stay where he was for as long as he said it was good, because that was it. Like if it was better for him to leave, then sure. But she said very clearly, if he feels it's it's good, it's very important psychologically for him to stay there. So then that's it. Like if you're a parent for a kid and somebody tells you this is what's best, then like I'll fight as long as it takes with whatever I have to make sure that I get what's best for him. I don't see it really as it, any other options. Although I guess arguably other people may feel differently. So, and your your ex-husband has been involved in all of this, or you've been fighting mostly by yourself? So my ex-husband stayed in Massachusetts when we moved to Israel. And so his involvement in the day-to-day -day of anything is pretty limited. Um, he was certainly kept up to date on all of this stuff and was involved uh, financially, because as you might imagine, a prolonged legal struggle is expensive. Um, and so he was involved... Uh, substantially financially in supporting that. Um, in the day-to-day -day fight and in like the day-to-day -day threats I would get by phone and by um, WhatsApp, go back to America, go to Tel Aviv, take your daughter there, they'll accept her there. He didn't get that. At one point, the area request told me that if he wasn't, if, they, if I didn't provide them with his contact information that they were going to contact him anyway. I don't know what they were threatening exactly. And it was like right before he was coming to visit. And I'm like, that's not a threat. He's coming. Let's schedule the meeting when he's here. He'll be happy to join. So again, like he was certainly supportive from a distance. The day-to-day -day was really me. And 
you know, I want to start wrapping up, but in terms of Aliyah, in terms of making Aliyah and having this all happen after you meet Aliyah, do you regret making Aliyah? Are you happy that you meet Aliyah? What are your thoughts on that? When we went on the plane, um, and I went on the plane with three children, the oldest of whom was not quite 10, I remember looking at my parents' faces and seeing their expressions of like, I, I really hope she knows what she's doing. I really <laughs> hope this is good. Which is to say, like, this is not what I expected when I made Aliyah. Like, I knew this wouldn't be easy as a single parent in general to move away from, you know, everybody. But I felt really strongly that it was best for me and for my kids to do that. Um, we did not expect Corona. We did not expect the legal struggle for my kids' acceptance. Um, no, I never got Aliyah at all. I got a lot of that question also from my friends. Like, have you thought about moving back to America? And I'm like, no, not why? Why? Where would I do in America? Like, this is where we live now. This is our home for several years. And so, honestly, there's like not a lot of parts of my life that have turned out the way I expected. You know, I'd say the one part is probably an oldest son named Ellie. I was very clear that I wanted an oldest boy named Ellie. And so I got that. Um, <laughs> so um, when I decided to make Aliyah, that was a conscious decision to leave my marriage, my job where I already got tenure, my five-bedroom house, my neighborhood, to leave all of that because I felt that where we were going to was going to be better. Um, and like, none of this is easy, but I think feeling that like this, let's say, like this part of life is the heart that I've chosen and feeling that kind of agency over that and those decisions, it really helps a lot versus let's say like if I go back to say between uh, college and grad school when I was engaged and unengaged and didn't know what to do and all of that, like that felt a lot like the world was being difficult, right? And the circumstances were hard. And I think that was also part of what made the fertility stuff so difficult also was that it felt like there was nothing I could do. There was no agency here. It was just, you know, the circumstances of stuff happening to me. And so then you contrast that to, you know, being here as a single parent during Corona and war and a legal battle and all of that. And I'm like, okay, well, like, this is still the heart I've chosen, right? This is a legal battle that we chose to have rather than, you know, not have it, right? You know, and that being said, it's still hard sometimes, the choices. Um, but that really, I think, helps sort of psychologically to deal with that and address that. Did that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so I wanted to just know if there's anything else that you wanted to add to this conversation before we wrap up. Is there anything that you'd want to say, anything that you haven't said yet that maybe you want to shed a light on to? I'm going to say this just based on the discussion I had yesterday with my therapist who is delightful. That's new that I have a therapist and she's great because I was complaining about the stress of my life, I think. And particularly the stress of the car breaking down and the kid having an anaphylactic uh, reaction and having six cavities and two root canals and a major grant deadline all in the same week or the same two days. Um, but I said to her that one thing which I'm, you know, grateful for is that I am really good under pressure at figuring out how to manage crisis situations, but that it would really be nice 
to not have to be that good at it all the time or feel like that. And so I think that like, I get a lot of, whoa, you've done a lot and you accomplish a lot and you manage a lot. And like, that's just so fabulous and amazing. Like, I just want to say like, sometimes I'm really just tired. And just to make that clear also, that in the end of the day, no matter what I looks like I can do and take care of and all of that, like, you know, taking care of all the things all the time can just be really tired sometimes. And like, that's also part of who I am. And like, I want to just make that, you know, very explicit. For sure. Is there a quote or pasuk that keeps you motivated and keeps you level-headed throughout it all? The answer is yes. My kids found my high school yearbook and they saw what they wrote about me. And they were laughing nonstop that I have not changed at all in terms of my fundamental personality from 2000 until today. And the quote that I chose for my yearbook, and I think there's like a lot of sort of the thought of, like, there's not going to be everything that works out. Can you translate the Oh, uh, it's not uh, incumbent upon you to finish the work. Um, but you're not allowed to sort of just like not do it. Like you have to start it or try. Um, and I think that um, from that perspective, like we're not going to get everything we want. Like I'm not going to get every grant I want. Okay. And every paper and every, you know, battle against the world. Okay. We're not going to win all of that. But I really, really feel strongly that if I can end it by saying that, you know, I've tried and I've tried my best, like the rest really is, you know, out of our hands, so to speak. So it's incredible. I'm blown away. Like, I have a lot of kavod for you. What you're doing here is really important. And so I'm really, I'm really privileged to be a part of it, honestly. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I, I really believe in what I'm doing. And I also believe that there's so many people that fit into this category, right? I think that your story is really an anything but traditional story of like, you literally went from traditional and now you're living anything but and it's amazing to see how you've you know as you just said like you've been able to say who you are dedicated to who you are grounded in who you are and um i think that that's a very important message to the world um if you have another message that you want to share um i'm happy you know for you to share the message right now that would be incredible i think about this a lot because i try to talk to my kids about life lessons and life approaches instead of just sort of managing them from activity to activity. And I say to them that the whole idea of keeping a perspective and like an accurate perspective on things is really important. So in particular, sorry, my car trouble was really traumatic for me this week. So I'll keep going back to that. Um, my car breaking down on the side of the road was pretty stressful, but, but it's just a thing, right? That's just a car. That's not somebody's help. Okay, the let's say we're at war now because we are. Even if it feels like it's going to be forever, we're not actually going to be at war forever. Eventually that's going to stop, right? Like I'm really tired right now, which I am. I'm not going to be tired forever, right? Eventually I'll have time to sleep. And sort of keeping that time perspective or the like thing perspective, the event of like, yeah, it's pretty annoying that my car had to be towed and I paid almost 3,000 shekels to get it fixed, right? But last time my car had to be told I had to buy a new motor. That was pretty rough. And the time before that, I had to buy a new car. That was even more rough. Okay, so I just keep that, I think, perspective. My porch fell down. Not really. Part of my porch construction that was new uh, broke. Uh, that's pretty annoying. Luckily, nobody was hurt. 
luckily it's something I can be fit. So I think that like as we go through all the ups and downs in the traditional and not traditional, like if you you can work really hard on saying most things bad and also, you know, possibly good are probably temporary, right? Um things that you know are just things and not help are annoying and expensive and stressful, but they're just things. And sort of, you know, keep the balance going on. I think it really can help a lot in terms of keeping like a relatively even keel about dealing with uh, junk and nonsense. And keeping perspectives. Yeah. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It had been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Anything But Traditional. It was really fascinating to hear Mindy Loving's story, and I hope each and every one of you has taken something away from the story as well. There's a lot to unpack here, as always, so please feel free to head over to Tales of Tomorrow on Instagram and explore the conversation further. You can DM me, message me, put an answer in the question box. Let's talk it out. There's a lot. There's really a lot. But you're not alone. Let's explore it together. Also, please know that there are sponsorship opportunities, ad opportunities. So please be in touch if you want to share your business, dedicate this podcast to a specific member of your family or someone you care about. Maybe you have an anniversary or birthday. Just hit me up. Let me know. Thank you for being here. Make sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts. Until next time, all the best. Mm-hmm.